Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Barry Motives. We're really happy you decided to join us today. And we're also grateful for all the times that we get to interact with you. Absolutely. Often our listeners ask us about how we get to pick our cases. And really, it's a whole combination of things. It really is. And both of us have really long lists of cases that we want to do. Yeah, that we have started or have got dog-eared that we want to do. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we take suggestions from a listener and sometimes... When we're studying other cases, we find something that points to another case. And so that one gets dog-eared too. Or we come across a really unique type of murder or something that we haven't quite covered yet. And so we want to go down that road. That's right. I was just thinking sometimes we go searching for something in particular. Like next week, I'm covering a Mother's Day case because it's right before Mother's Day. Right. And sometimes a case just gets chosen because there are details that draw us in. And sometimes those details that perk our interest are pretty random. And that's what happened with today's case that we'll be discussing. Other than being a tale of love gone wrong, this case takes place in Monterose near Scranton, Pennsylvania. And in our house, we're huge office fans. (laughs) So when I saw Scranton, I was like, oh, I totally have to do this case. Isn't it funny? Because even when you said that, like Scranton, I automatically associate that with the office. Yeah. And so that's what narrowed down this case for me. Then you're pretty easy to please. Oh, true. Melissa Slade. (laughs) Scranton cinched it for me. (laughs) That's awesome. But I am glad that it did pique my interest because as I kept researching the case, it just kept getting more interesting and more interesting. It's not too often that a porcupine gets the blame for someone's death. (laughs) But it's not never, right? That's right. The tale told was so confounding that it had me reenacting the crime with my husband to try and understand (laughs) the evidence. And that was definitely a first in our house. (laughs) Are you serious? (laughs) I'm totally telling the truth. We reenacted this crime. (laughs) I don't know if I should be freaked out or like super impressed right now. I just had to understand how the evidence worked out. Okay, listeners, I hope you understand just how deep we dig here on Buried Motives and to what extent we go to bring you these cases. Do you mean like you took out your real guns? Yeah, we made sure they were unloaded. But yeah, we were (laughs) struggling with them. Oh my goodness. (laughs) That's when it's like an officer would just happen to stop by and you guys are reenacting this murder. Like, what are you doing? I had to see if a porcupine could shoot a gun. (laughs) So when we get to it, are you going to tell us that's the part that you reenacted? It's the whole story that the guy gives for why this murder happened or why the killing took place. Okay, so listeners, if I'm laughing during the part about the murder, it's not because it's the murder, but it's because I'm picturing Melissa and her husband reenacting it. I had to see if the mechanics would actually work. <laughs> well, and that's what investigators do do. They yeah. reenact it to see how it works. I've just never done it personally myself before this case. No, I can't say that I have ever done that or that I ever probably will, to be <laughs> honest. My, how this podcast has changed us. If it was me, I would have just been like, here, you hold this spatula. This is your gun. <laughs> and I'll hold these tongs. And that's my gun. <laughs> Like, why couldn't you do that? It's a shotgun. And so that's a big one. I would have just grabbed a meter stick. (laughs) I have a glue gun in my house. That's what I would have (laughs) used. Melissa obviously (sighs) lives in the wild, wild west. (laughs) Me, not so much. Have you seen there's on Pinterest, you can find it where there's a headboard 
that's a gun case too so that you just reach up on the headboard and the gun falls out into your hands no but it is giving me Catherine Knight vibes when she had all her (laughs) knives displayed above her bed that's totally what I thought of when (laughs) you told that part in Catherine Knight crazy but today's case is a classic tale of a love triangle with a murderous twist Ooh, these ones are good Mm -hmm. love can make you do crazy things and so can jealousy the murderer in this case eluded investigators for over 20 years despite being the only possible suspect what Mm -hmm. 20 years 20 years that's disappointing yeah someone dropped the ball there Uh uh-huh so let's get right into it on the morning of june 2nd 1976 two friends martin dylan and stephen sure headed out to martin's family's hunting camp the two belonged to a club called the wednesday afternoon club can you guess when the club met wednesday afternoons (laughs) Right? The most original name. But yeah, you got it. I was half expecting you to say Thursdays <laughs> at 7 p.m. But just like you guessed, it was a club that met on Wednesday afternoon and gave men the excuse to shirk off their demanding careers for an afternoon to relax and enjoy some male bonding. Often this bonding involved drinking and shooting guns. Sounds interesting. Sounds like every guy's dream, right? Yeah. So that particular Wednesday, the club's attendance was looking a little sparse. Most of the men in the club weren't able to clear their schedules for the afternoon. So just Marty, 31, and Stephen, 36, headed up to Gunsmoke Retreat in Susquehanna County, just outside of Monterose, in Marty's BMW around 3 p.m. Once at the camp, the two set out to shoot skeets. After spending about 21 rounds of ammunition, they headed back to the trailer for a break of beer and potato chips. After their break, they headed back out on the trail. Before they got too far, Stephen noticed that he had forgotten his cigarettes and wanted to return to the trailer to get them. And that's when the sequence of events took a twisted turn. According to police statements taken immediately after the accident that day, Stephen loaded his 16-gauge Winchester pump-action shotgun so it would be ready and placed his gun in a stand about 120 feet from the skeet shooting area. Marty unloaded his 20-gauge shotgun and leaned it against a tree. That's when Marty saw a porcupine and grabbed Stephen's gun and started running in pursuit of the animal. In his pursuit, he tripped over a loosened shoelace and fell on the gun, causing it to go off. (gasps) effectively shooting himself in the chest from close range. No. All because the porcupine had crossed his path. No, because he didn't tie his shoes. (laughs) Yeah, it's the shoes that should get the blame, (laughs) not the porcupine. Well, the porcupine's not really to blame. He was just living his good little life. But he was the one that set off the events. No, he made the choice. He was trying to kill the porcupine. (laughs) The poor little porcupine was running for his life. Christy's already exonerated the porcupine. (laughs) Free the porcupine. (laughs) (laughs) But that's who got the blame for this one. His injuries were catastrophic. Stephen ran the 150-foot distance to his friend's side, flipped him over, but wasn't able to do anything for him, despite being a doctor. He performed CPR by providing breasts and massaging the heart, but he was unsuccessful. The blast had torn a hole right through the center of his chest, leaving only fragments of the heart behind. (gasps) So he had his hand right in there actually massaging the heart. Mm -hmm. Because as you were saying that, I was like, wait, you mean like massaging on top of where the heart is? I was not expecting (laughs) it to be blown so wide open to actually be able to put his hand in his chest cavity. Yeah. So Stephen, with his hands and mouth spattered with blood from trying to revive his friend, he drove to the neighboring house to get help. When they returned to the scene of the accident, Stephen said he was so overcome with emotion that he smashed the gun against a tree, swinging it like a baseball bat by the muzzle. The gun was broken into two pieces with the barrel separated clean from the stock. While destroying it, Stephen screamed out that the gun would never kill again. So he took all his rage out on the gun. Right. So this is the part you had to reenact. Could you actually fall on the gun and shoot yourself that way? No, this isn't the part we reenacted. Oh. Nope. 
Yeah, because right now it seems like an accident. I'm mm-hmm. thinking, where's the murder? Yep. When first responders arrived, they took note of the scene, but weren't able to revive Marty. Stephen had been right. His friend was dead. Aww. The county coroner arrived at 7.25 p.m., and Marty was pronounced dead at the scene. His body was taken to the county morgue in the basement of the Barton Funeral Home that evening. Marty left behind his wife and two small children. Oh, that's terrible. The next day, a local doctor performed a preliminary autopsy on the body and signed off on the original ruling of the Susquehanna County coroner, John Corton. Martin had died from an accidental self-inflicted gunshot wound. Grief-stricken after his friend's death, Stephen left town. Right after he acted as one of Marty's pallbearers. Stephen was recently separated from his wife Anne, and his divorce was about to be finalized within a couple of months. Now, without a wife or his friend, he sought the comforts of New Mexico, where he had previously lived and practiced medicine. Patricia, or Pat, Marty's wife, moved with her two children to Philadelphia shortly after the murder. Pat and Stephen kept in touch after leaving Montrose, and she believed Stephen to be her only friend as she started her new life. Because Martin's life insurance policy, had been put in her children's names and not hers just weeks before his death, Pat was now a single mom working to support her children. So when her long-lost friend showed up in Philly two years after Marty's death in 1977 with groceries for her and her kids, it was a natural progression to start dating, according to Pat. And it's not that unusual for a best friend to start dating his friend's widow, if you think about it. After 9-11, there were lots of firefighters that left their wives and formed relationships with their friend's widows left their wives to go be with the widows Mm -hmm. it's a documented thing that happens after a tragedy yeah oh i totally can see that i'm Mm -hmm. just not excited about the fact that they're leaving their wives to go be with the widows but if you're a single friend and that happens i can see how that would because you would be grieving together you both had a mutual love for that person yeah if you think about it that's what happened in this is us too it's true but it happens it does it totally happens yeah the two were married on june 18 1978 in donna anna and first settled in new mexico The family moved later to Lincolnton, North Carolina in 1992, where Stephen set up a successful family practice and worked as a respected physician for the next 20 years. The couple were the picture of a devoted family, raising Marty's two children and adopting a third son, Jonathan, together. Aw. So Stephen didn't have any children of his own yet? No. Okay. He didn't have any. And he was already divorcing his wife? Yep. Yeah, so he didn't leave his wife for her? No, their divorce was already in progress. Yeah, I approve. (laughs) Yeah. Christy approves. Yeah. Marty's parents, Larry and Joe Dillon, though, weren't happy about this marriage and who was now acting as the father figure for their grandchildren. Oh, they just didn't like him? Nope. Larry, the mayor of Monterose in 1976, had never bought the accidental shooting story. Oh. He believed his son was too experienced of a hunter to ever run with a loaded gun. To Larry, the whole story just didn't add up especially when he took into account the rumor circulating around the town at the time of his son's death. Oh, man. So I don't approve then. If he he killed Marty, then yeah, no, that's off. Hold off on some of your approval. Yeah. Okay. Back in 1971, Martin Dillon, a successful up-and-coming lawyer, had befriended Dr. Stephen Barry Schur, who was new to town. Stephen was born in Toronto, Ontario, Canada on May 10, 1940, but then later moved to Michigan and would become a U.S. citizen. He was a smart man and attended the University of Michigan, where he studied biology before pursuing a career in medicine. When he was a second-year medical student at the University Medical Center, he married his wife, Edna Ann Elias, a bacteriologist, on June 9, 1963. And I won't spend a lot of time on his history. There's not really much that's interesting, and it really doesn't play into his motives. Okay. But by all accounts of his personality, he was a charismatic man used to getting what he wanted. 
He and his wife, Anne, had recently moved to Pennsylvania in 1971 and had started a new medical practice that would specialize in treating allergies. The clinic was out of the Monterey General Hospital, where Pat Dillon worked as a registered nurse. Stephen was a striking figure, standing six foot one and 245 pounds. And Pat was a very beautiful woman. Oh, this is the Pat that marries Marty, though. That is married to Marty. The oh, t- I totally forgot this is a love triangle. Yeah. Duh. Keep up, okay. Christy. <laughs> I know. I just was so concentrated on the porcupine <laughs> that I forgot all the rest. No, the porcupine was a red herring. Okay. <laughs> For 20 years, the porcupine was a red herring. That's crazy. Uh-huh. So the two men were introduced and hit it off, though Stephen was a few years older than Marty. They held similar interests in hockey and hunting, and it wasn't long before Martin, or Marty to his friends, was inviting Stephen to his men's club. Their friendship continued to grow and became a family affair. Marty and his wife, Pat, and Stephen and his wife, Anne, enjoyed spending time together with each other's families and would even vacation together. It seemed like the perfect friendship. Until around the office, Stephen began to arrange his and Pat's schedules so that they were overlapping, allowing them both to be at the hospital at the same time. It wasn't long before rumors started to fly. And this all happened as early as 1972. Wow. Stolen glances in the hallways, overly friendly laughing at the nurses' stations, and whispered conversations in clinic rooms. The rumors grew and more people reported seeing Stephen caress Pat's legs in the hallways and, get this, massage her breasts. What? (laughs) At work in front of everybody? Maybe not like right out in the open, but people did see it in like stolen little moments. Of perversion. And I love the way they use the word massage because isn't that where you carry all your attention? He was feeling her up. (laughs) Yeah. Let's say it how it is. Yeah. Because most women would say, oh, my neck, my shoulders, my back. You want to give me a massage? Go there. There's a time and a place. There was one witness that said patients were made to wait over an hour while the two were locked in an examination room together. Holy cow. So they're not even trying to hide it. Nope. Not at all. So not quite a booty call in the on-call room like in Grey's Anatomy, but definitely (laughs) enough to make people's tongues wag. Oh, for sure. And the rumors weren't just about the hospital or from unreliable sources. Susquehanna County Judge Donald O'Malley, who had been the neighbor of the Dillons, said that before the shooting, he had often seen Stephen visiting Pat when her husband was not home. Red flag. mm -hmm. Even the poor paper boy got mixed up in the rumors and shared an account of having to wait at the front door of the Dillon home for payment. When Pat finally answered, she was red-faced from exertion and Stephen's car just happened to be in the driveway. Oh my goodness. So even this poor little paper boy was like part of this rumor mill. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They are not being discreet. No. Not They're at wanting all. to get caught, it seems. Mm-hmm. When the rumors got back to Anne, she didn't believe them. She and Stephen had been happily married, or so she thought. Well, and Pat's her friend. Mm-hmm. They vacation together. I mean, we all have those couple friendships That's that we right. have, right? And I'm looking at you a little differently. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> No more family vacations. That's why you're not coming to Rome with us. That's right. (laughs) When in Rome. (laughs) Okay, but speaking of vacationing, one of the couple's vacations to Colorado around 1974, Anne actually started to suspect that there might be something to these rumors that she had been hearing around the office. While spending time by the pool, she came across Stephen rubbing Pat's leg. After that, Anne began tracking her husband's actions. 
but couldn't quite bring herself to believe in the affair. By her own admission, she was in a fragile emotional state and couldn't really be decisive on the issue. So she was seeing all the signs, but she just really couldn't believe it. So sad. Mm -hmm. And it's a double betrayal when it's your friend. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So to make matters worse, at the time, Stephen was treating her for depression and prescribing antidepressants and tranquilizers to her. She recalled one time after an argument between her and Stephen, she found a bottle of 40 to 50 sleeping pills left out on the bathroom counter for her. She believed that Stephen was trying to encourage her to kill herself. <gasps> what a dirtbag! Mm-hmm. Anne finally filed for divorce late in 1975. So how many years did that go on then? The affair, they think, about three years. Wow. So that's why Stephen was already getting a divorce at the time of Marty's death. Oh, yeah. Not approved. The divorce was final in 1976. During the divorce proceedings, Anne alleged that Stephen had confessed his love for Pat to her and had kept her from telling Marty by claiming that Marty was acting as his divorce attorney. In reality, it was actually one of Marty's partners that was drawing out the divorce papers. But he purposely told her this lie so that she wouldn't go and tell Marty. Stephen made counterclaims that it was Anne's allegations and suspicions that were causing the irreparable damage to their marriage. And that's why they needed to get a divorce. And that, my friends, is called gaslighting. Uh Uh-huh. He presented the case that she was mentally unstable and pretty much this crazy woman that he could no longer live with. Oh, this guy is terrible. Mm-hmm. Anne would later admit that she did try to commit suicide by taking sleeping pills, actually on the day of Marty's accident. She knew. According to another witness at the time, Stephen had been trying to solve the problem of Pat's marriage as well. Divorce wasn't an option for a devout Roman Catholic, and she would need an annulment, so she couldn't just simply get divorced. Yeah, so he killed her husband. Yep. All of these rumors were a sore spot to Larry, Marty's dad. He had a nagging feeling that just wouldn't go away. So he kept digging and prodding into his son's death. The investigation was reopened by District Attorney Snyder at the encouragement of Larry Dillon in early 1989. But after a panel of conference experts deemed an accidental death could not be ruled out, Snyder conceded that there was insufficient evidence to prosecute at the time. During that investigation, first responders from the scene were interviewed to recall what they had seen. And what about motive? How come motive isn't playing into this? Well, they waited two years, you said, to get together? Yep, they waited two years to get together. And at the time, he was this loving friend that was completely distraught over the death of his best friend. And he was a physician, and so he was respected in the community. And as we go through his kind of later trials, you'll find that he actually was quite respected by all of his patients and community members, that his patients actually stick up for him. That's crazy. And say like, no, this isn't the guy we know. And they never are. No. And that was totally a guise, I'm assuming, with him breaking the rifle. He just was trying to get rid of the evidence. Well, we'll get to that. And it put his fingerprints on it in a justifiable way. So during that investigation, even though the district attorney had said that there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute, they still did a little bit of digging. And as they were doing that digging... They interviewed the first responders that had attended the scene. Trooper William Hairston of the Pennsylvania State Police recalled arriving at the scene to find Marty lying on his back with blood pooled on the left side. His hunting goggles and earmuffs were on the ground about five to six feet away and had blood on them. State Trooper Frank Zanon had also responded to the call and did not believe that the shooting was an accident. 
He was the trooper responsible for documenting the evidence at the scene. He found Marty's body on his back with his arms outstretched, his chest saturated in blood. He also found blood splatter on his boots, but none on his ears or eyes where the ear and eye protection would have covered. And there were streaks of blood where they would have been removed. Oh, so they, oh, they so had he was the outline. them at the time. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I gotcha. Marty's left eight inch high hiking boot was found to be untied in the three top hooks, but the laces were still pulled snug and that the pant legs were elevated over the boot. Under Marty's left hand were broken clay pigeons. The state trooper also had examined the broken gun and found no blood on the inside or the outside of the barrel, which if it had been shot at close range, you would expect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He also noted that the ammunition that was discharged was a number four high-load brass magnum shell, one not typically used in skeet shooting. Usually number eights are used for clay pigeons. Hmm. But it wouldn't be unheard of to have a mix of ammunition in a shooter's ammunition bag. But it was noted that the bullet that killed Marty wasn't typical for the activity that they were doing. At the same time, it also wasn't typical of shooting big game either. Okay. He's sounding like a dirtbag. Christy sent him upriver. Larry also learned that the general practitioner that had done the autopsy on his son's body on the day following the shooting had not investigated the cause of death thoroughly because the coroner at the scene had already listed the cause of death as accidental. And the chest wound had already been sewn up by the funeral home because the body had been first released to them. Oh, man. So at the time of Marty's death, coroners were political appointees and they actually weren't required to have any formal medical training. So the coroner that went to the scene got his story from Stephen noted it down as an accidental death and then when the autopsy was performed they had already started to embalm the body (gasps) and so he's like oh the coroner said it was an accident it's an accident and so they ruled it as an accidental shooting that's sloppy work Mm -hmm. later that same year larry was tired of the prodding from the sidelines so all this time that his son had been dead he was trying to get people to investigate it more and more And finally, he just gave up on that idea and hired a private investigator for himself. Good old dad not giving up. Mm -hmm. Stuart Bennett was a former police officer and an expert in crime scene reconstruction, and he was hired to review the evidence that was on file. When asked why he had waited so long to hire an expert, Larry said that he had wanted to avoid causing hardships for his two grandchildren. He wanted them to be old enough to know and understand why he was pursuing the man that had actually raised them. Despite his well-meaning, the grandparents would remain estranged from their grandchildren for the rest of their lives after this. Aww. Mm-hmm. That's so sad. And could you imagine that's your only connection to your son? And because you want justice for him, you're cut off? Yeah, that puts you in a really hard situation. Mm-hmm. And so he said it always weighed on his mind. That's why he didn't pursue it when they were younger. Right. And why he waited so long. That's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. In January 1991, Bennett concluded that Marty's death could not have been an accident based on his reconstruction of the crime scene. Bennett had measured the wound size in the photographs and scaled them to determine that the hole left by the bullet was much bigger than would be expected from a close-range shot. Based on the choke of a gun, the cone of spray from ammunition is predictable. Bennett used this information to conduct an experiment with pigskin and progressively shot the same gun at the pigskin at increasing distances. The results from this experiment indicated that Marty had been shot from a distance of at least three to five feet, not a direct hit with the barrel up against the skin. This report reopened the investigation again and allowed for even more digging for a motive. Wow, that's amazing. How clever, right? Yeah, I love that. And so this began my whole lesson on how shot comes out of the end of a gun and how it can spread and what the the actual choke is. That's what brought out the guns originally. That's so interesting. Mm -hmm. 
1992, the state police sent to the FBI the boots that had been taken from Stephen two days after the shooting. FBI lab analysis showed that high-speed blood splatter patterns on the boots Stephen wore at Gunsmoke were spattered with blood and fragments of tissue. This type of spray could have only been left from a large force used within close range of the boots, indicating that he had been close to Marty when he was shot, not the 150 feet that he had claimed to be originally. So why is he not just arrested right now? This is crazy that this was even deemed an accident. Mm -hmm. So this is already, he died in 76. This is 92 now. Oh my goodness. so long afterwards. And he would just be living his good life feeling like, ha, I got away with it. Absolutely. Yeah. He is enjoying all the perks of Marty's life. Including his wife. And his children. Oh. Yep. Dirtbag. Investigators believed that it appeared that Marty was shot while sitting or squatting because crime scene photos showed that both pant legs were bunched around the knee and elevated enough so that both of his socks were plainly visible. This was also supported by the blood spatter found on the instep of Marty's left hunting boot, as well as on the stump that was close by Marty's body. So smart. Mm -hmm. Isn't forensics amazing? I found this case so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It was speculated that this was because Marty had been in a crouched position while throwing skeets rather than running. Yeah, totally. One of the detectives was so convinced that Stephen was guilty, he would send Stephen Christmas cards that read, thinking about you, (gasps) just to try and unnerve him. Oh, that is sassy. I love it. I'm not sure that's like uh, an interference, but... Oh, I'm sure that's harassment (laughs) and that detective probably could have gotten into trouble, but... Stephen probably didn't want to poke the bear and ruffle any more feathers either. No. Like, I don't want to bring any extra attention on myself. That's right. But this one particular investigator, he had it pegged. He knew that Stephen was guilty. And so he, (laughs) every Christmas, would just send him little cards. I love that. Yeah. That is hilarious, actually. All of this collected evidence allowed Larry Dillon to petition a judge again to allow him to have his son's body exhumed for another autopsy good he had been denied several times before but now that he had all of this information they couldn't deny him this time yeah and he didn't even get a proper autopsy before the first time no not at all pat and her children objected to the exhumation of her late husband's remains and both she and Stephen denied having any relationship prior to marty's death during a civil suit to have the body exhumed Despite Pat's objections, on April 29, 1995, Martin's body, which the authorities had said was well-preserved, was exhumed by Dr. Mahalikas, a pathologist from Allentown, Pennsylvania. He had been one of the original people on the panel to vote that the death had been an accident, Ooh. but he changed his tune. Mahalikas said that because of the scallop shape of the bullet wound and the 45-degree angle that the bullet had entered on from an elevated position from the right didn't jive with Stephen's story. Just like Larry had suspected, the scalloped edge indicated that the shot pellets had traveled through the air because they had already started to spread out. This wouldn't have happened if the gun had been close to the skin, and the angle was completely wrong for a gun that had been dropped and gone off accidentally. Right. Mm -hmm. So good for him for not letting his ego stand in the way. Yeah. Like for being able to say, no, I was wrong initially yeah and to correct his way well and originally when they made that determination they didn't have all of this evidence they only had that original autopsy report to go off of and it was a shoddy autopsy report that's true and this is almost 20 years later they know so much more about forensics for sure mahalikas also noted that there had been no gunpowder burns or residue 
that were usually associated with a gunshot from close range, leading him to believe that Marty could not have shot himself accidentally. But I wanted to point out here that the study of GSR is usually limited to a short period of time right after the shooting, and not to mention the fact that the body was washed, it had been embalmed, and now had been buried for 20 years. Yeah, there would definitely be none left. But the lack of gunpowder residue when presented to the jury was very impactful. Really? Mm -hmm. That's surprising. So my big question in all of this is, did Pat know? Because when she's resisting having the body exhumed... Is it because she just loves her new husband so much or she's not wanting to get caught herself? Let's wait till the end of the story and then you can... We can discuss it. Yeah, we can make some educated guesses on it. Because I have no idea at this point. Yeah. I can't say one way or the other. Yeah, and I go back and forth, but I don't think that she did. Okay. For how adamantly she defends and how adamantly the children defend him, I don't think they had any idea. But if I was in on it, I would be defending him because if he's found guilty, I could be found guilty. That is true. Yeah, so maybe. So that could be self-preservation right there. True story. See, I always give people the benefit of the doubt. I'm like, no, she didn't know. She was innocent. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm here. (laughs) Mahalik has concluded that the death was a homicide. Finally. Yeah. Based on that report, the county coroner, Robert Bartran at the time, officially declared the death a homicide on June 26, 1995. That day, the state police named Stephen as their main suspect. He was the only other one present. Yeah. Other than the porcupine. I was just going to (laughs) say, let that poor porcupine live his life. The next day, the Shures returned to Pennsylvania, and at a news conference in Scranton, Schur challenged the police to charge him. What? Yeah. How's that for arrogance, right? That is. Like, here I am, guys. Come get me. That's right. Oh. I think that after all that time, he had just been waiting for the shoe to drop. And it wasn't a big secret that his father-in-law was out to get him. The investigations and the battles over exhuming Martin's body had made it clear that they were trying to prosecute him. And so it had been years and years of building. And then finally, he was like, you know what? Just charge me and get it over and done with. So during the press conference, he said, arrest me and let's get on with this trial so I can forget about the last 19 years. Ow. And it was this comment that I started picking apart the evidence more. But I think it's more his ego. You said he's this man who's used to getting everything that he wants and Mm -hmm. so far in life has. It's gone almost 20 years since he murdered his friend and they didn't have enough evidence to charge him and make a case then. So he's probably feeling like you're gonna have even less to make a case of now. Well, and could you imagine trying to present a case after 20 years? Yeah. But that's just what the police did. Good. Mm -hmm. Stephen was arrested on June 20th and was sent to Susquehanna County Prison, and the bail was set for $750,000. Family members, mostly Pats, put up their houses as collateral (gasps) for the bond. No. Mm -hmm. Wow. So they totally believed him. Pat stood by her man, at least her second husband, and refused to believe that Stephen had anything to do with the murder of her first husband. In a press conference, she declared that he was not capable of such things and that she had lived with him for 17 years and that she knew him and she could not believe that he had done this. Okay, if she did not have anything to do with it, what a nightmare Uh huh. to be sleeping next to the man who murdered your first husband Yeah. for 17 years. That would be awful. Yeah. Right? Regardless of whether they had had an affair or not. No. Right? For sure. Mm -hmm. And you think that if they had done it in cahoots together, wouldn't they have gotten together quicker? Or do you think the two years was totally planned? 
two years is a respectable time. Like it's not yeah, like they two went. Two years is a respectable time, and it's not like they went to the same city afterwards. Like they right. they went to totally different states. After. Doesn't mean they didn't see each other once in a while. That's true. They couldn't even pause to pay the paper boy. So <laughs> I don't know how it's hot and heavy. <laughs> yeah. So Pat Schur, with the permission of the state court, had her former husband's body exhumed after first being denied in 1996. So she had his body re-exhumed in an effort to have their own pathologist re-examine the body and gain their own evidence. So first she fought it and Uh then she's like, okay, fine. You're going to charge us. We want it exhumed again. Yep. We're going to recollect all that evidence. Yeah. See, that seems suspicious for me then. Mm. So their pathologist, Dr. Michael Baden, who had worked on several high-profile cases, including the O.J. Simpson case, got access to the body to re-examine it. He was commissioned to find the evidence that supported the accidental shooting claim, or the claim that Marty was suffering from depression at the time of the shooting, and maybe the shooting wasn't accidental after all. Now they're going to throw suicide in there? Uh Uh-huh. They just start throwing out all of these ideas. Stephen's lawyer went as far to hint the original coroner had purposely neglected to put these findings down on the written report because of the political connections to Martin's family and the want not to hurt the family any more than it already was at the time of his death. So they started throwing out all of these rumors to help their own case. Wow. This case would make a great movie. Yeah. (laughs) I can just visualize the whole thing. During the re-autopsy, they found that the previous pathologist had taken part of the chest wall around the wound as evidence, and they weren't able to make any conclusions because of the state the body had been left in. They were able to take samples from the inside of the wound bed that they felt might be useful to their case. So it wasn't a total scratch for them. Well, the other examiner probably didn't think it would ever get re-exhumed. No, not at all. Later, having been given custody to the remains by the court, Pat Schur reburied her former husband in a new unmarked grave, and hopefully it'll be his final resting place. An unmarked grave? Yeah, Patty, honey, you're not looking so good to me. Why an unmarked grave? Yeah, I don't understand that one either. You would think that you would want someplace for your children to go and visit. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a little suspicious to me. Stephen's stepchildren also supported him throughout the whole trial, not only sticking up for him and providing moving testimony about his kindness and the care that they had received from him, but using $65,000 of money that they had inherited from Marty for Stephen's defense. (gasps) No. Yep. That's terrible. So they 100% totally believed. And I believe that he probably was a great dad to them. Mm -hmm. He probably loved them, raised them right. Provided a good life for them, but... Guilt-inspired? Oh, is Marty, like, rolling around in his little unmarked grave? Like, could you imagine your children using the money that you left them to try and defend your murderer? And putting him... I just can't get over the unmarked grave thing either. It's almost like erasing him. We're just going to put him in this unmarked grave. He's done. We're done with this. Yeah, we just want to be over with this part of our life. Yeah. And the same thing with Stephen saying, I just want to forget the last 19 years. Yeah. So disrespectful. Mm -hmm. It's putting some salt in that wound. But I don't fault the children for using that money. You know, they're victims in this. They have nothing to do with it. So you can see if you really believe that your stepfather was innocent, you would at all costs try to defend him and help him. And that would be so hard to believe something of this kind man that had raised you. Yeah. But could you imagine what Marty's parents felt like? No. Watching their grandchildren defend who they believed right from the very beginning was the murderer. Yeah. During the 1996-97 trial, 
the prosecutor presented an argument that Pat had been confronted by Marty about the affair just prior to his death. He had given her an ultimatum, him or Stephen. She had chosen Marty. When she then told Stephen she was planning to break off the affair and was choosing her husband over him, being passed over didn't sit well with Stephen. And that's what led him to shooting Marty. They presented him as an arrogant doctor with a God complex that was accustomed to getting his own way. Sounds right to me. Yeah. And so this is why I think that maybe she didn't have anything to do with it. Seems plausible. But wouldn't you think, okay, you've just broken up with this man and then your husband is shot and killed well with that man? Maybe that's why it took two years. Maybe it took two years of convincing on his end that that I I had nothing to do with this. I want to be with you. It was God's way of putting us together. Yeah, maybe. Because remember, she wouldn't get a divorce because she was Roman Catholic. Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think that she did have anything to do with it. And I can't believe that she didn't have, if she was breaking up with Stephen and then this happens right after. That she wouldn't have suspicions. Yeah. How could that not be in the back of your mind? I guess. Remember, you're in a grief-stricken state. And if you think about Stephen's wife, Anne, she missed all of the signs of affair for how many years, even though they were right in front of her face, just because she chose not to believe. Right. And so if you put that same kind of mentality on to Pat, here's this man that's trying to help her with her children. She's struggling as a single mom. It's a man that she's had feelings for in the past, whether they were just lust or, or actually love. Maybe you would look past it because you didn't want to see it. Yeah, maybe. I guess only Pat knows. Yeah. So during the trial, the prosecution pathologist walked the jury through why he believed that Marty had been shot from several feet away while in a crouched position. There was no blood on the gun, and there was blood splatter on a stump by where he was found, and the unlaced but still tight shoe. They argued that if Marty had been running with an untied shoe, it would have worked the laces farther down loose. Mm-hmm. And we all know that, right? Yeah, you, totally. The more you move, the looser the laces get. Yeah. The evidence against him must have been weighing on his mind when Stephen took the stand. He must have felt the need to explain away some of what the jury was hearing from the prosecution. Oh, is he shooting himself in the foot now? Mm-hmm. <laughs> in his original statement to the police right after the accident, Stephen had said that he and Marty had been discussing a rumor that was going around and that he was considering leaving town because of it. And he had said that Marty had called him a chicken and not to worry about small people talking. Now on the stand, his story changed. So in his original interrogation two days after the murder, he alleged that they had been talking about a rumor, but he didn't say what the rumor was. And so then the police didn't know to investigate this rumor any further. Come on, police. Wouldn't you ask what the rumor was that you were discussing? In the transcript, they didn't. Wow. They were more focused on were the two getting along, were they in a good mood at the time right prior to his death. And they think it's an accident. Yeah, they totally believe it's an accident because here's this respected physician telling them that it's an accident. And so they were establishing that they hadn't been fighting. And so the way that Stephen told them about it was that they were joking actually back and forth. He was calling me a chicken. You know, he's telling Mm. me to stand up like they were just having guy talk. Right. Stephen changed from his original story to say that Marty had confronted him about the affair. Marty had said that Anne had come to him to tell him that Stephen had said he'd love Pat. So Anne came through in the end. Good. When asked point blank by his friend if he was having an affair with his wife, Stephen said that he had to come clean and told him that he was having a physical affair, but not a love affair. In his testimony, Stephen says that he pointed out to Marty that it was as much his fault as anyone else's. And that's when Marty lost it and a fight broke out between the two of them. Why would he say it's his fault? I think he was alluding to like, you're just not paying enough attention to her. Like, okay. Yeah. 
He's so brazen. Mm-hmm. He's got it all figured out. He's a cocky little dirtbag. Yep. During the fight, Marty grabbed the nearby gun, which just happened to be Stevens. And Stephen had to defend himself, so he grabbed the gun too. And that's when the gun went off and Marty was shot accidentally as the pair struggled over the shotgun in a fight that broke out over the love affair. And this is where our role playing took place. Oh, <laughs> I love this. I don't love the murder, but I love that you guys role played this. Well, I was trying to figure out, could you get that 45 degree angle from the right that showed up on the autopsy reports if both of you had the gun in your hand? Right. Because it had to be at least three feet away because they said three to five feet, right? And so could you hold it out that three feet like as you were struggling? Right. And can you? No, you can't. No, we don't have three feet long arms. Well, maybe some people... No, you don't. No. (laughs) I was like, no, you can't. What we came to the conclusion of is that you could probably get that 45 degree angle or it might be plausible if you had struggled and one person had fallen to the ground and then it went off as you were ripping the gun out of their hand. Right. So there's where you get your elevated position. You get a little bit more distance. And so at this point, I'm thinking, oh, maybe it was an accident. So it could have been a struggle. Yeah, it totally could have been a struggle and an accident. But then why didn't he say that? All those years ago. Oh, it's not over yet. Just wait. Ooh, good. Really, I did try my hardest to give him the benefit of the doubt. I don't know why either. But he just seemed like such a nice guy in all of his interviews. (laughs) You just wanted to believe it, right? And because he wasn't a delinquent. No. He didn't have this rough childhood and this long criminal history. No. He was a stand-up guy that took care of these children and was a good father, a good husband. I read all of his patient reviews and they all sounded absolutely lovely that he had advocated for his patients and taken care of them and gone the extra mile. And yeah, like usually you find negative physician reviews, Right. right? And even after he dies, his patients were still writing on his memorial about the care that they received from him. Wow. And so I was like, these two men don't add up. They are not the same person. But he was used to getting his own way. And at what cost? Yeah. Pat was very beautiful. And everybody does things sometimes out of their character. And everybody makes mistakes that they wish that they hadn't. Yeah. Right. And so it could have been a heat of the moment type of thing. Right. Maybe he wasn't planning to murder him that day, but maybe they got into a fight and he grabbed the gun and did. Right. But in the heat of the moment, you usually go back to your base training. And so say he had overpowered Martin, grabbed the gun from him. Your base training is to put the safety on, not take the safety off. But if he's totally consumed by rage at that moment. Maybe he did actually want to kill him in that moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe he had some kind of psychotic episode in that moment. They never make that claim. He admitted that he had untied Marty's shoe in an attempt to make the story more believable. And that is why the shoe was undone, but not loosened from running. Marty had never been running. He said that he had made up the story because he was new in town and the only Jewish doctor. He believed that the prejudiced opinions would prevent others from believing him. Well, and the thing is, too, didn't they determine that Marty was in a crouched position? So if you're fighting and trying to struggle for that gun... You're probably not crouching. But you could be thrown to the ground in a crouching position. You could. Mm -hmm. For a split second until you're lying on your butt. When asked why he had never fessed up in the 20 years that had passed since the shooting, he said that he was just trying to protect his family from the pain of the truth. But it's a little self-serving. It is. Yeah. Because you wouldn't have had that family if you had told the truth. Yeah. The defense team must have been ready for Stephen's change in story because they had a witness already ready to go to collaborate that Marty knew about the affair. During the trial, the Dillon's former babysitter, Cindy Klein, testified that Marty had told her 
that he was going to take Dr. Sure up to the hunting camp and kill him. She said that she had kept quiet about it because her mother didn't want her to be involved with the case at all. What? That's a curveball. You can't say that his attorneys didn't know the truth. Yeah. They already had this witness lined up to go. Maybe he paid her off. Maybe. He is a physician. The defense pathologist argued at length that the autopsy evidence was consistent with two men struggling with the gun, and the trial became a battle of coroner reports. While the prosecutors presented Dr. Mihalikas' theories, the defense had three different experts, all of them with their own opinions of the evidence. Based on the 873 crime scene and autopsy photos and the original coroner's report, they concluded that there was gunpowder residue in the wound tract based on slide smears that tested positive for a carbon-like material, and this pointed to Marty being shot at close range. The defense concluded that because the gun was fired from close range, that the most plausible explanation was that the gun had gone off accidentally as the two men fought in a heightened emotional state. Okay. So you've got these two totally different stories. And I don't think I'd ever want to sit on a jury. Yeah, because those both seem like they could be plausible. Mm -hmm. It's just unfortunate there wasn't the proper investigation right at the beginning. That's right. And now you're playing catch up after 20 years. But even though the mechanics of the fight might have been possible, why was the gun safety off in the first place? True. These were two experienced hunters. And so it would be muscle memory to put it always back in safety when you set it down. So even if he had picked it up, one of them had to take the safety off. After six weeks of trial, Stephen was convicted on October 22nd, 1997 of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. First degree even? Mm-hmm. This was a huge surprise to many of his patients that had tied yellow ribbons on trees in their hometown to show support for their doctor. They could not believe that he had anything to do with cold-blooded murder. Stephen appealed almost immediately. Stephen's lawyer argued that because of the 21-year delay in bringing charges against him, it violated his due process rights. Because it took the state 21 years to prosecute him, Stephen argued that valuable evidence that would prove that the shooting had been accidental had been lost or destroyed and therefore impeded his ability to prove his innocence. His original appeal was granted and his conviction was reversed on June 7th, 1999. And he was freed from prison. What? Mm -hmm. He just walked straight out. Oh my gosh. Which would mean that there's not going to be a retrial. Well, you would think, but they do. Okay, you can't throw out one because the evidence is too old and then start a new trial with that same old evidence. But you can appeal and appeal. Right. So. (laughs) Is he going back to the slammer? (laughs) Chris has got to know. I do. Yep. It's funny because this is kind of a simple case, but I have so many questions. Yep. So as part of his release, he had to post a $750,000 bond and check in with a parole officer daily. And this was a precaution because the courts already anticipated that the prosecution would be fighting the appeal ruling. They knew right off the bat that yeah, the, the other team yeah, was going to fight. And could you imagine what that would have been like for Marty's parents? No. Who had fought for 20 years to get no. a conviction brought forward and then just have the man set free. Yeah, because you would feel so much relief and just mm-hmm. finally he's being held accountable. And then, nope, just kidding. No, it would be completely a slap in the face. It would. So Stephen and Pat returned to Lincolnton for a couple of years, but ended up moving to nearby Dallas, North Carolina. The North Carolina Medical Board refused to reinstate Stephen's licenses to practice medicine, even though his conviction was thrown out. Pat was just finishing her probation from the perjury that she had committed during the deposition in the civil lawsuit about the exhumation for the autopsy. She had sworn under oath that she and Stephen had not had an affair prior to Martin's death. 
For her guilty plea to the lie, she had received 15 months probation, 50 hours of community service, and a $500 fine. Which actually shows that she will lie. Mm -hmm. Right? She'll lie to the courts and the police. Yeah, that's true. At the time of Stephen's release, Pat made the statement to the newspaper that sometimes it's hard to believe in miracles, but we have one, and I am thankful. The two returned to living a quiet, comfortable life in the suburbs. So she's still sticking by him. Yeah, which makes me feel like she knew. You think so? Mm. In 2000, his appeal of the conviction was brought before the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. At this court, the reversal was overturned and Stephen was ordered back to prison (laughs) in 2002. Stephen dutifully returned again to the police station to be detained. His family's new neighbors in Dallas were surprised when media vans showed up on their street. They had no idea who they were living next to. Oh my goodness. But there didn't have to be a trial because the appeal was just totally overturned. Overturned, yeah. Now you have to go back to jail. Yeah. Stephen's lawyers again set to make another appeal. What? And it's a good thing he was a doctor and had a lot of money. Because could you imagine the legal costs for all of this? I did find one source that his annual income was about 350000 Oh, wow. And so today that would be 576000 Annually. Mm-hmm. In 2004, the court ordered a new trial to be held to determine if Stephen was guilty of the first degree murder of his best friend. So they're like, this is just too crazy. We're just going to redo it all. What? Mm -hmm. During the second trial in March 2008, the prosecution presented the same evidence, this time focusing on the ear protection that had been removed after Marty was shot. They argued that had Marty been wearing ear protection at the time he was shot, then he really couldn't have been having this great big argument with Stephen about the affair. Right. Oh, that is smart. Mm -hmm. And that's what cinched it for me. I was like, nope, you're guilty. Yeah. If you're having this heated argument, you're not going to continue to keep your ear protection and goggles on. No, those are going to come off right away. Especially if you're ready to throw hands. Mm -hmm. Stephen was adamant that he and Marty had had an argument over the affair, and Stephen maintained that the gun had gone off accidentally. His lawyer argued that if Stephen had planned to murder Marty, that he would have been more careful about the execution and would have taken greater precautions to hide the affair. So he's saying, this is a doctor. He's well-educated. Why wouldn't he have planned better? That was their defense. Like, what you're saying he did is beneath him. If he was going to murder, he'd be better at it. Remember that God complex we talked about earlier? Yeah. (laughs) I think he's got it. It sounds like he could be a cult leader. (laughs) He was very charismatic. He had me believing him for a while. (laughs) For the second time, a jury returned the guilty verdict after only two hours of deliberation. And Stephen, at age 68, was once again sent to prison. Wow. His last trial was the final straw for Pat. She had divorced him just prior to the trial beginning in early 2008. Huh. So not such a devoted wife anymore. Now that he's going back to the slammer. That's right. She's done with him. And... They had emptied their bank accounts. They were completely ruined from all of his putting up bond. They had to sell their houses and cars and yeah. he had no money left. That makes me more suspicious of her then. <laughs> she was just in it for the money. Well, no, but the lavish lifestyle as soon as he's going to jail and I have no money left, mm-hmm. then I'm not going to stay with him. I did find one source that said that when Pat grew up, her parents had always encouraged her to marry a doctor so that she would be well taken care of. Yeah, I, I don't believe she didn't know. Stephen died two years later in 2010 of natural causes at the State Correctional Institute in Laurel Highlands in Somerset County on August 9th. He was 70 years old. The announcement of his death was met by former patients expressing gratitude for his care. Oh my goodness. And it sounds like he was a great doctor, but not so much a great friend. No. 
And so what's that about this? Like, yes, justice was served, but he served, what, two years? Well, he served a little bit more than that because he was in and out of prison for a right. short time. So, yeah. Yeah, but maybe six years in total. Yeah. He didn't serve very much time. No, for... and he had 20 years of the best part of his life. Yeah. Right? Yeah, he got those good years all in. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, because could you imagine you can commit a crime and like, oh, can I defer that for 20 years? And then I will take my punishment. So it's kind of like he got away with murder, really. Yeah. I think he did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's the case of Stephen Sure, the not so great best friend dirtbag. Yeah. Lock up your wives, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> that was a wild ride. I just thought it was so crazy. And I hope that porcupine lived a good life. <laughs> he did not do it. There probably wasn't even a porcupine. No, there around. was never a porcupine. Yeah. It was all like just this big story that he told. I want to believe there was. That he saw a porcupine <laughs> go by and he's like, ah, I'll pin it on him. <laughs> That was very interesting. You had me intrigued the whole case. Love triangles are always interesting cases. They are. Okay, now I do have to ask, what is your feelings about Pat? Do you think she knew? I don't think she did. You don't? No. Well, I don't know. I'm torn. (laughs) (laughs) I'm curious what our listeners think. If you guys want to comment on our social media on this case or send us a message even and just let us know if you think she knew. Yes. That would be awesome. Help me to decide. Put down your arguments on our Facebook page. For sure. Help me persuade her. (laughs) (laughs) But until next week, see ya. Bye. because I was thinking while I was talking. I know. That's I'm a hard thinking. thing to do. <laughs> That's what I just said. Christy's laughing at me. Because usually it's me when I can't put certain oh, words okay. together. I think we need to start something like that, but for women. The Wednesday afternoon club? I think the Monday to Friday club. <laughs> See people, cigarettes kill. No, it's the porcupine. Oh, right. Sorry. From the scooch. Scooch eating. That's <laughs> the scooch over here. <laughs> My voice went really high there. You want to say that again? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My cheeks are already sore again. I don't know if I can say it. You're just going to have to use the high-pitched one. Trying to start wearing is to start... What are you trying to say, girl? Just say it. Had befriended Dr. Stephen Barry Schaefer. Not Schaefer. Stephen Barry Schaefer. Not Schaefer. Stop saying Schaefer. I'm going to throw something at your head every time you say Schaefer. <laughs> grab my thing of pens. <laughs> Had befriended Dr. Stephen Barry Schaefer. Not Schaefer. Sure. sure. Accidental death. Sorry. Deemed that an axle death. Deemed an axle death? A daxle death. Deemed that a daxle death? <laughs> no, porcupine death. <laughs> All right. That an axle death could. <laughs> Wait. I think I zoned out for a second. I was like concentrating on Scranton. I went to the office. Do you have a reset button you want me to push? Hey, we're live, pal. And we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now, but we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye.
come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many roads that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.